Would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 2? By way of reminder, we are making our way through the book of Galatians. Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he planted in the region of Galatia, somewhere in Asia Minor. It's actually written not to one particular church, but to a series of church churches that he had planted in Lystra and Derbe and Thyatira. You may hear those biblical cities in the Bible. Oh, I forgot to mention we're going to dismiss our kids to Children's Church. They're dismissing themselves, uh, which is good to know that you don't need me to dismiss you. You can, uh, If you've got little kids or preschool age up through third grade, you can meet at the back for Children's Church. And this is such a unique book because the focus of the whole book is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The focus of the book is that Jesus is enough. He's always been enough. He always will be enough until he comes again. And so let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 2, we'll start at verse 11, we'll work our way through 16. I'm also reminded as I stand up here, uh, the guys in the back have put little markers on the floor, uh, which tell me how far that I can wander. And so if I have something secret to tell you that I don't want the online people to know, that I just do like this. And I'm completely invisible. See? And now I'm back. It's like magic. Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. We'll read through verse 16. This is God's word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So simple and yet so radically profound. I pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us through your word, for we believe that it is living and active. We pray that it would change our hearts. We pray that it would change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a seminary student who got called to a little country church, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. He came to that church, and for the first six months, he made a promise to himself that he was going to focus on the main thing. He was going to preach, he was going to teach, he was going to get to know the people, he was going to learn the rhythms of the community. He would not make any major changes until he'd been there for at least six months. So he bided his time, and he did his work, and then, after six months, he decided that he would make his first major change. 
he would convince the church to buy a new chandelier. So he, so he called a congregational meeting and inadvertently started World War III. Immediately, the church broke down into two factions. Some in the church were pro-chandelier. Some in the church were anti-chandelier. The anti-chandelier people accused the pro-chandelier people of being poor stewards of God's resources. Because why would we spend money on a new chandelier when we could use that money for missions and ministry? The pro-chandelier people began to accuse the anti-chandelier people of failing to love their neighbors. Because what's more loving than a brand new chandelier? The discussion went back and forth and forth and back for hours and hours, and the young pastor was beside himself. He didn't know how he was going to restore unity to his church. Well, finally, an old farmer stood up, the oldest member of the congregation, and he said, young man, I have something to say. Pastor said, preach it, brother. Tell me what you have to say. And the old man said, I want you to know that I am against the chandelier. And I'm against the chandelier for three reasons. Number one, we can't afford it. Chandeliers are very, very expensive, and we don't have the money. Number two, nobody in this church even knows how to play the chandelier. <laughs> and number three, what we could really use is a new light fixture. <laughs> have you ever attended a church meeting like that? Unfortunately, I have attended a few church meetings like that. Have you ever had an argument like that over Thanksgiving dinner? I've done that too. Have you ever had an argument like that with your husband or your wife? No comments. <laughs> Whether it's politics or mask wearing or college football or even chandeliers, sometimes it seems like we argue for the sake of arguing. What if we started listening to each other. What if we could agree to disagree without being disagreeable? What if, instead of trying to win the fight, we tried to win the person? This morning, we're going to talk about unity in the church. How do we agree without being disagreeable? How do we compromise our ideas without completely selling out? How do we find common ground when seemingly we have nothing in common? Galatians 2 shows us how. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, we find ourselves right in the middle of a knockdown, drag-out fight between two of the most important Christian leaders in the history of the church. In one corner, we have Cephas, otherwise known as Peter. Before certain Jewish Christians came to Antioch, he would eat and drink with the Gentile members of the church. He was open. He was accepting. He would say, it's not about race. It's all about grace. And then he retreated. He pulled back. 
he found a new clique, the circumcision party, and the Gentiles weren't invited. In the other corner, we have the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul has an interesting background because he used to be a Pharisee. He used to be a religious leader. He was a legalist. He was proud. He was arrogant. He looked down on the Gentiles. He thought to himself, Jews are morally superior to the Gentiles. Jews are culturally superior to the Gentiles. Jews are intellectually superior to the Gentiles. We don't need to become like them. They need to become more like us. Then he met Jesus. And his life changed forever. First, God humbled him, blinding him on the road to Damascus, literally knocking him to the ground. And then God exalted him, picking him up, showing him the grace of God, showing him the gospel, and placing him in authority in the church. He found freedom. He found joy. He found grace that was greater than his sins. He saw what Peter was doing, and he said, oh no, we're not doing that anymore. We're not going to exclude the Gentiles. We're not going to add any requirements to the gospel. God's grace is free. God's grace is for all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles and anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus. We are one in Christ. Because Paul loved Jesus, because Paul loved the church, he was willing to fight for unity. He was willing to fight for peace. He was willing to fight for freedom. He was willing to fight for the gospel. Are you? Are you willing to fight for freedom? Are you willing to fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ? How much do you love your neighbor? How much do you love Jesus? How much do you love the church? If you're taking notes this morning, here's the outline. We're going to talk about how the gospel brings unity, specifically within the church, but really even beyond the walls of the church as well. And as we do that, we're going to look at this story in two parts. So in part one, we'll see Peter's retreat from the Gentile Christians. And then in part two, we'll see Paul's response to the Jewish Christians. So Peter retreats from the Gentile Christians, and then Paul responds to the Jewish Christians. How does the gospel bring Jews and Gentiles together? How is Jesus the only hope in our divided world? Did the young pastor ever get his chandelier? Let's take a closer look. We begin with Peter's retreat from the Gentile Christians. Peter's retreat from the Gentile Christians. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, again, that's Peter's Hebrew name. Cephas is Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, that's a powerful statement, is it not? Paul, an apostle, opposed Peter to his face because Peter was condemned. In other words, 
Peter wasn't guilty of a minor error. error. This is not a small thing. This is a gospel issue. This is perhaps even a heaven and hell issue. And so Paul intervenes. So what exactly did Peter do? What's the nature of his sin? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. In the next verse, verse 13, we read that Barnabas, who was one of Paul's best friends, his name means son of encouragement, one of his close partners also was drawn up into this as well. He pulled back. He said, we're not going to eat with the Gentile Christians. They're unholy. They're unclean. They're second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, I think that there are at least three layers to Peter's sin. Now, perhaps more than that, but I want us to think about three reasons that Peter sinfully excluded the Gentiles from the family of faith. Now, the very first level, the surface level, is the sin of racism. We might call it uh, Jewish nationalism or maybe Jewish supremacy, but essentially, Peter and Barnabas and the James gang believed that they were racially, religiously, and culturally superior to the Gentiles. They had a two-tiered view of humanity. The Jews were on the top, and the Gentiles were on the bottom. The Jews were superior, and the Gentiles were inferior. Now the question is, is that biblical? And the answer is no, absolutely not. It's not biblical at all. There is no racial or ethnic group that is inherently superior or inferior to any other racial or ethnic group. It's simply not biblical. Now, here's the longer answer to that question. This view that Peter and Barnabas and the men from James had fallen into comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of the Old Testament people of God. In the Old Testament, God called his people to be holy. God called his people to be separate from the Gentile world. They were set apart. Israel had a unique dress code. They had unique ways of eating food. They had unique ways of worshiping God. The sons and daughters of the Jewish people were not permitted to marry the sons and daughters of Gentile people. Now, does that sound a little bit uncomfortable to you? Why is that? Why were they forbidden for do, from doing that? Was it because they were superior? Was it because they were better? Is this sort of a Jewish ethno-nationalism run amok? No, not at all. Throughout the Old Testament, God makes it a special point of telling the people of Israel, I did not choose you because you're better than anyone else. I didn't choose you because you're stronger than anyone else or smarter than anyone else or more numerous than any other nation. In fact, the reason I chose you is because you are none of those things. I chose you because you were the weakest. I chose you because you were the smallest. I chose you because you were the most stubborn and you're falling back into sin over and over and over again. God set apart the Israelites to be holy to be different, to be set apart from the Gentile nations so that the Gentile nations would be drawn 
to the true and living God so that the queen of Sheba would be drawn to the true and living God so that Ruth the Moabite would be drawn to the true and living God so that Rahab the prostitute a Palestinian Arab would be drawn to the true and living God the whole point wasn't exclusion The point was embrace. God wanted the Gentile nations to see the beauty of holiness so that they would embrace the true and living God. Racism, white supremacy, intersectionality, any kind of ideology or ism that ranks people based on their race or ethnicity or national origin for the purposes of excluding them from anything, but especially from the kingdom of God, is a sin. It's an absolute rank abomination. It has no place in the church. It has no place among God's people. We are all created in the image of God. Every person that you meet has dignity and worth because every person is created in the image of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But not only that, we all have the same human parents. We have the same human parents, Adam and Eve. Some of Adam and Eve's kids have dark skin, and some of Adam and Eve's kids have light skin. And some of Adam and Eve's kids, like me, have almost translucent skin. I basically have two colors. I'm white in the winter, red in the summer. Some of God's kid, Adam and Eve's kids have curly hair. Some of Adam and Eve's kids have straight hair. We're all different. We have different appearances, different accents, and different cultures and customs. But if you go back far enough, you will see that we're all related. We are all brothers and sisters. We are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We all have the same problem. That's the bad news. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a universal human problem. There is no one group that is any more or less sinful than any other group. Paul writes in Romans 3 verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. But here's the good news. We all have the same solution to the problem of sin. God has provided one solution to the problem of sin in the person of Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to earth to save all who believe, everyone who believes in him. In Romans 1.16, we read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first the Jews and then the Gentiles. Peter excluded the very people that God had intended to include. And Paul said, You're sinning, Peter. Racism is wrong. You stand condemned. But that's just the first layer of his sin. 
underneath that layer of sin, the, the sin of racism, is the sin of fear. Peter would not stand up to these Jewish men from James because he was afraid. Verse 12, For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Before the James gang arrived, Peter ate with the Gentiles. Before the James gang arrived, Peter embraced them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Then Peter pulled back. He stopped returning their text messages. He blocked them on Twitter. He unfriended them on Facebook. Why? Why such a change? Because he was afraid. He was afraid of being criticized. He was afraid of being condemned. He was afraid of of confrontation. He was afraid to stand up and say, you guys are wrong. We can eat with the Gentiles. In fact, we must eat with the Gentiles. These Gentile Christians are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Edmund Burke once said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Peter was a good man. He was a Christian. He was an apostle. He was one of the leaders of the Christian church in the first century. But evil triumphed in Antioch because Peter knew the truth and Peter said nothing. He shrunk back. He went along with his friends. He refused to take a stand. Let me ask you, are you willing to take a stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to take a stand for truth? For moral truth? For biological truth? For cultural, sociological truth? When the world says, hey, it's all like this now. We've all met together and we've all decided that things are this way now. And you know it's a lie. Are you willing to stand up and be counted? Are you willing to say, No, I refuse to participate in something that is anti-gospel, that is anti-Christ, in something that is anti-truth. Are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to lose a job or, or a scholarship or friends? Listen, I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope all the alarmists are wrong. I hope the post-millennials are right. You can Google it later. These guys who always say, hey man, it's going to get better and better and better until Jesus comes again. I hope so. That would be fantastic. But assuming that it doesn't go that way, are you willing to stand up and be counted? We need more Christians like Paul. We need more Christians who are willing to speak up and stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. To do what's right even when it's hard. Here's the third layer. The third layer, the biggest problem with Peter's sin is this. Verse 14, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. 
Peter's behavior didn't align with the gospel. His conduct betrayed the truth of the gospel. Here's the truth of the gospel. We are not saved because we're better than other people. We are not invited to the Lord's table because of our race or our class or our ethnicity or anything else other than the grace of God. We are all at least as bad as other people, and some of us might even be worse. And yet, God has fellowship with us because of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you do tomorrow, if you are in Christ, there's always a place for you at God's table there's always room for you in the family of God because of Jesus. The gospel is about inclusion. The gospel is about embrace. The gospel is about forgiveness. The gospel is about humility. The gospel is about hospitality. Is your conduct, is the way you live your life in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is anyone excluded from your table? Is there anyone in your life that you're unwilling to forgive? Is there anyone in your life who you're unwilling to embrace? Maybe it's racial, maybe it's ideological, maybe there's someone in this church or someone in your family who really irritates you. Because your view of COVID-19 is very different than their view of COVID-19, and you just can't get along. Maybe there's someone in your family or in this church who voted for one guy, and you think that guy's an idiot. And no sensible person could ever vote for that guy, whoever that guy is. And you're fighting, and you're excluding one another, and you're stiff-arming each other, and you're not united in love. Maybe you have a view of vaccines that's different than somebody else's view of vaccines. Maybe someone you love is a huge Alabama fan. <laughs> and you're just so annoyed by that person because Alabama's good every year and they tell you about it every year. <laughs> is their place at your table conditional? Or is it unconditional? Is your place at God's table conditional? Or is it unconditional? Peter knew the gospel intellectually, but he didn't align his life with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul confronted him. That's why Paul said, Peter, what you're doing here is wrong. Now that leads us to Paul's response to the Jewish Christians. Paul's response to Peter and Barnabas and the men from James shows us how the gospel brings unity. His response shows us that we can have peace in the church. Now the very first thing that we see is that Paul confronted Peter personally. He didn't talk behind Peter's back. He didn't complain about Peter to other people. He didn't post 
passive-aggressive comments about uh, Peter on social media. That's fun. He had a problem with Peter, and so he brought it to Peter. If you have a problem with someone, bring your problem to that person. Y'all have phones. I've seen them. You're checking them right now, half of you. I'm just kidding. Call them up. Send a text message. Meet them in person. Say, hey, man, I got to grab some coffee with you. We got to talk. I'm bothered by this. I have this against you. We need to reconcile. We need to have peace. Now, if you want a more detailed blueprint about how to do this, Jesus gives us one in Matthew 18. He says, go one-on-one. He says, if that doesn't work, bring somebody else. If that doesn't work, come to the church. Use the resources of God's people. But the point is unity. We have to work for unity. We have to work for peace. Now, the second thing that we see is that Paul confronted Peter publicly. Not only personally, but publicly. Peter sinned publicly, and so Paul confronted him publicly. The nature of the sin determines the nature of our response. If someone sins against you privately, if that sin didn't affect other people, just you and that other person, there's no reason to make it a public issue. There's no reason to yell it from the rooftops. However, if someone sins in a very public way, then we must, for the purity and peace of the church, for the glory of God, address that in a very public way. Again, let Matthew 18 be your guide. Start start with a private confrontation and then work out to a more public thing as needs be. The third thing we see is that Peter confronted that Paul confronted Peter pastorally. I think that Peter's sin and the sin of Barnabas and the rest, I think it broke Paul's heart. I think that he was profoundly disappointed by what these men did. Now, I might be reading too much into this, so take it with a grain of salt. But as I was reading this, this little phrase just came home to me, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. Even Barnabas. Even Barnabas. Do you feel the emotion there? Do you feel the hurt Even Barnabas, who I discipled, even Barnabas, who was my friend, has left me and abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even he was led astray by their hypocrisy. You know, sometimes when we confront people about sin, we go in with our guns blazing We go in with righteous indignation. We're going to destroy them with facts and logic. And we've got seven Bible verses to point out everything that this person is doing wrong. That kind of approach usually doesn't work. I think a pastoral approach, the kind of approach where we grieve over people's sins, where we speak the truth in a loving way, is far more in line with the character and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who could have come like the sons of thunder wanted him to do, casting fire upon the earth. 
but instead allowed the fire of heaven to be cast down upon him so that all of us might have peace and unity in Christ. The fourth thing we see is that Paul confronted Peter prophetically. Now, when I say that he confronted him prophetically, I don't mean that that Paul's rebuke was foretelling, as in like telling the future. I mean that it was prophetic in the sense that it was forthtelling. You'll find that as you read the prophets in the Old Testament, a lot of what they do is not predicting the future. It's proclaiming the word of God. And so he confronts him by bringing Peter in line with the word of God. Verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, just a word of editorializing here. I think you could probably put Gentile sinners in quotes. I think he's sort of characterizing what these guys were saying, but he doesn't agree with that, in case you wondered about that. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not, quote-unquote, Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. How are we justified before God? If you answered, not by works of the law, then you were listening. Because he says it three times in these verses. Not by works of the law. We're not justified by works of the law. So then if we're not declared righteous before God, if we're not declared not guilty before God, if we're not declared loved and accepted before God by works of the law, if it's not about the rules and the regulations, if it's not about Jews becoming Gentiles or Gentiles becoming more like the Jews, then what is it? We're justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. When God looks at us In spite of our sin, in spite of our failings, sometimes when we sin, we miss the mark. We shoot at the target and we're off to the left. Sometimes the target's over here and we're aiming this way. And yet God can look at us and say, you are loved, you are accepted, you are part of the family of God because on the cross something amazing happened. Jesus took all of our sins upon himself and then he gave us The perfect righteousness of God. Theologians call this double imputation. The great Martin Luther called it the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus took all of our sins and we received all of his blessings and loved and acceptance before God. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we are no longer excluded Because of what Jesus has done for us, we are no longer unclean. We can't obey our way to heaven. We can't give our way to heaven. We can't perform our way to heaven. We cannot and do not have to do anything to earn God's love. Jesus did it all. All we have to do is believe. All we have to do is receive the grace of God, trusting that Jesus is who he said he is and did 
what he said he would do. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When we believe the gospel, when we align our lives with the truth of the gospel, all the dividing walls of hostility, racial, economic, gender, all these things that our world is constantly dividing us and sorting us and putting us into camps, all those walls come crumbling down. We are one in Christ. Do you believe that? When we believe the gospel, we are united to God. We are united to one another. The gospel brings unity. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for the unity that we have in Christ. I pray, pray that you would increase the unity that we have with one another. And I pray, Lord God, that if anyone's conscience is accusing them this morning of a brother or a sister or a friend or someone who, who is at odds with them, I pray, Lord God, that you would bring healing and reconciliation. I pray, Lord God, that this person would leave our sanctuary today or leave their computer at home today and go to that person. Lord God, unity is worth it. The gospel demands it. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.